and welcome to Word Up, a series of podcasts hosted by Oxford University Press with Helen Prince and guests. In this podcast, we talk about constantly looking to learn something new and we share an Einstein quote. So that inspired me to have a look for a couple more quotes from Albert Einstein. And I found two that I thought I'd share with you today. The first one says, imagination is more important than knowledge. Love that one. And then the second one is, if you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it well enough. Really excited today to welcome to our Word Up Oxford Education podcast, Lauren Stevenson. Lauren is a physics teacher and the assistant director of Blackpool Research School, which we're going to be looking at in a bit. Expert advisor for the Education Endowment Foundation's Improving Secondary Science Guidance Report, which created seven key recommendations that bridge that gap between research and the classroom, which is such a vital, vital step uh, to bridge. Currently studying for an MA in education, she is a very prolific blogger with a brilliant blog site that I've been having a look at. Lauren, huge welcome to our podcast. Thank you for having me. Really lovely to have you with us. So you're in your sixth year of teaching. So I thought really fascinating to know a little bit about you. Why physics? Why teaching? What are your passions that led you to where we find you today? Well, I I was one of those people that kind of went straight into teaching from university, really. I kind of always knew that I wanted to work with students. I kind of always had a a love of science and I quite enjoyed maths, which is why I went down the kind of physics route out of Mm -hmm. all of the three. But I did quite a lot of extracurricular uh, things at school and through university. And it just kind of led me down the path of working with uh, like older students and kind of secondary sixth form type age and just really enjoyed it. So uh, yeah, teaching straight after university was my choice. So you've come straight through, yeah. fresh faced and ready to go. Brilliant. <laughs> and on your blog site, it says you're constantly looking to learn something new. I love that. I love that idea that we are we never stop learning. It's always that cycle of of wanting to do better and learn more and know more. Yeah, I think I just I, I always had to be fair have done this had like nosied on Twitter at kind of the latest blog post or um, those kind of small educational books that you can just kind of pick up on a Saturday and it not be like a huge chore to have a flick through. That's that's things that I've already kind of always kind of done. Mm. I'm always looking to kind of how can I teach things efficiently and effectively and and research and evidence informed practice um, are kind of like your best bet. So that's what I've always naturally kind of drawn myself to and kind of indulged in outside of the classroom. And I just think with me doing an MA as well, I just I enjoy learning for myself as well as kind of my students and thinking about how I can make them learn uh, better. Yeah. Do you, do you share that with your students? Do they know that you are also on that track of learning? Some of them, yeah. My older ones, I've got a six form form. So when they're all kind of talking about university and the application process, I'm mm. like, yeah, I did that recently. It, it sucks a little bit. Mm. <laughs> so I, I, I can, I can sympathise. Yeah, it kind of makes it hard though when they're not getting the work in and I'm maybe behind on an assignment or two as well. It kind of <laughs> doesn't help on that respect. Nice to have but, that yeah. common language though, that common ground where you're actually both in a similar scenario yeah definitely definitely yeah we shared a few emails didn't we prior to this and on the bottom of your email you've got this brilliant Einstein quote uh, which says learn from yesterday live for today 
hope for tomorrow. The important thing is not to stop questioning. And I wanted to ask you why you chose that quote for your emails and and what what does it mean to you? You know, when you speak to kind of like family members or like grandparents or something, and they always say, oh, when you were a kid, you did whatever it might be. (laughs) The one thing that they always used to say about me was I'd always ask questions and I'd imagine it was quite annoying. But I think, and, and to be fair, if I reflect on myself now, I do always ask questions. I'm always the person that's kind of wanting to find answers to new things. Mm. Um, and I think w- where I work and kind of working with the older students that I do, quite often they they lack that kind of um, that vision. And kind of I always say to them, the world's your oyster. Like, have a think. What sector do you want to work in? Where do you want to go? Like, like set your sights higher. We'll, we'll do what we can do to kind of get you there. Mm. And obviously with physics as well I just kind of came across that one day and thought actually no that resonates quite well so I'll stick that on the bottom of my emails yeah it's great isn't <laughs> it? yeah it's really good never stop questioning it's a great great mantra for us yeah. so tell us then a bit about this role that you have with Blackpool Research School because that will be something I'm sure that will fascinate many of our listeners what is a research school to start with and and what's your role as assistant director within that so a research school, there's, there's a number of us around the country um, and we work in conjunction with the Education Endowment Foundation. And our main kind of goal is to bridge that gap between the evidence, the research evidence mm. and classroom practice. Um, it's to make it kind of accessible, really, to your, your classroom teacher, who's obviously very busy and kind of got lots of things to juggle. Mm. And it's kind of what are your best bets? What's the evidence saying? And then how can we support you and kind of help you interpret that for the classroom? I worked with the Education Endowment Foundation to put together that um, the Improving Secondary Science Guidance Report. And kind of on the back of that, I was then able to do a lot more courses and helping on a more local level, which is how I kind of ended up with my role within the research school. And so I, a, a good chunk of my time now is disseminating that research, helping it be accessible, writing like blog posts and articles and things to make um, make it as easy as possible, really, for your kind of everyday classroom teacher to access what can be quite nuanced and quite challenging if you haven't got the time yeah. to kind of delve deeply into it, yeah. which is, is what we're there for, really, helping improvement through evidence-informed practice. That's such a vital role, I'm sure. I've I've often felt there's a real disconnect actually between the profession and and the foot soldiers on the ground who are day in day out delivering mm, definitely lessons and learning and and all of the myriad of fabulous things that we do in the classroom. And then that that layer of of research, which is utterly vital. What's quite good about it as well, like when I've been doing sessions with a variety of different people, they always say, oh, I've, when they read something, oh, I've always done that. And mm. I never kind of knew why. Mm. I just always found it worked. And what you you often find is that the evidence or the recommendations from the guidance reports or whatever it might be um, will just confirm the things that you're doing are correct. And it will also show you some things that maybe you can kind of let slip because they don't have as much of effect as other things so it really helps you like narrow your focus and kind of make your your time in the classroom and your practice and all of that quite quite efficient and uh, directed to the things that are going to have the most impact that's such a crucial role and so there's a research school network Yes, there's a number of us around the country. Um, I think it was 23 last time I checked, but there's a variety of um, associate research schools as well. And 
we work within our kind of regions to try mm-hmm. and support um, various trusts and local authorities and individual schools as well on their journey of improvement. And we do that through disseminating the evidence. But we are we're very much there to kind of assist and to to kind of talk you through what what the research says, support you through the implementation process Mm. um, and kind of guide you on that journey, really. Interesting. And have you found that you've got better engagement over the last sort of 18 months where we've all had to go online? Oh, yeah, definitely. What's been quite nice about um, all of the online world that we're now in is that we've been able to reach a much wider audience. So back in the olden days, um, (laughs) pre-COVID, it would be people physically turning up to sessions and, and obviously the, the school day is very busy. People have lots of commitments. But what we've been able to do is embed a lot more kind of online twilight sessions. So people from various different places can log in for an hour, listen to kind of short, sharp snippets of the latest. Um, mm. So recently there was a feedback guidance report that's come out, which has got some really interesting and useful recommendations in it. Um, prior to that, we had the um, the evidence summary, summaries around the impact of COVID and kind of remote learning and all of those sorts of things. And we, we were able to do kind of like breakfast sessions, twilight sessions that people could dip in and out of online, which has been really good, really. Really helpful. A, a nice adaptation to what we were doing. Yeah, really user friendly. I know yeah. that um, OUP are putting a lot of the, the things that we talk about here on, on their links. So I'm sure if you can help let us have some of the links to those areas and we can Definitely. we can share those and call it people can can go and access them after the podcast brilliant so I know Lauren that you're really interested in metacognition and I wanted just to have your take on metacognition in the physics classroom really and also if, if someone's looking to really start delving into it where should they go what should they do so metacognition has uh, it's slightly become a little bit of a buzzword that's like thrown around mm. often and we should often be wary of kind of the next fad but metacognition is is really effective the EF did an evidence summary uh, a number of years ago and they looked at the um various studies that were done and they they found that if you work on self-regulation and metacognition with your students it potentially could add up to seven months extra progress onto mm. what they would do normally and all the details and the research behind that is on their toolkit and it can be quite daunting at first when you start kind of looking at what metacognition is but the way I always describe it to people is if you could kind of make your perfect student, so in our case, a perfect science student, you would say that they were very, um, very aware of the content. So they'd know their keywords, their definitions mm. and, and all of that sort of thing. They would also be very aware of their strengths and their weaknesses. They would say, oh, I'm not very good at this topic or I'm great at that or whatever. Um, and they'd also have the motivation to kind of the studying and go away and read and and whatever it might be. Hmm. And somebody who has kind of all of those three aspects is what you would describe as being self-regulated. Now, metacognition is a subsection of self-regulation and and it's quite often referred to online as as learning about your own learning. And and that's quite simplified, but it is that study of your own learning processes. Hmm. So that could be revision techniques study techniques but it is also strategies so not necessarily related to science but subjects which have 
structures to answers. I'm thinking kind of like your RSs, your Englishes, where you have to have extended writing. Quite often they'll have some sort of acronym to help students structure answers. Yeah. Teaching them that strategy and getting them to understand why that particular strategy is effective for the exam in question or why it gets them certain marks and getting them to really delve deep into why is also metacognition. Students need to have an understanding of their own learning strengths, weaknesses, Mm. but they also need to understand the tasks and they need to have a good understanding of the strategies that they can use and when they're useful. From a science point of view, it's kind of, um, I'd say it's quite really important that you work on this because a scientist higher, like I'm thinking like A-level and beyond, they need to be able to think quick, adapt to unfamiliar circumstances, Mm. be able to say, oh, I saw that before. And I remember I did that last time. So I can do this again in the future or whatever. And those are the skills that are metacognition. They are very aware of what they've done, where they're heading and their strengths, their weaknesses and, and all of that sort of thing. Yeah. It's such a fascinating area and really interesting to hear about it from your you know, science perspective of what it looks like in the in the physics classroom. I mean, one of the things we do in English is reciprocal reading. And actually, that's got a whole layer. And it's very linked with oracy, you know, this this huge value that we we all now, I hope, are aware of, of, of talk as, you know, the crucial driver for learning. The, the latest um, APPG report says talks the currency of learning and and giving roles around that such as you know questioner clarifier predictor summarizer so that so that students are really in charge of understanding what does it look like to be a really effective reader and asking those questions and summarizing and and all of those processes and so in the science classroom what sort of role does talk play for those metacognitive processes? Is, is it as vital as it might be for us in English? Well, metacognitive talk is very important. Um, and I always find that it's about getting students to go beyond the answer. So talk about why they've arrived at a certain answer, whatever that might mm. be. It might be a mm. justification that they need to provide. It might be an explanation of how they got there. But it's, it's that idea of getting them to delve that little bit deeper into their thinking and be a little bit more aware of how they've arrived at whatever it is. So the journey that they've been on and sharing that between pupils in the classroom, being able to share that with you, the member of staff, and to say, right, well, the reason I got this is because I made that decision there. I thought about using this equation and this reason and kind of getting them to openly discuss that in the classroom is, is really important as well. Yeah. Really vital. And do you think do you think that's quite useful for some of our students who are maybe more reluctant? Because it might give them that view, that vehicle to move forward and understand the process to sort of unlocking that learning for them. Yeah, definitely. I think even from kind of a member of staff's point of view, you you are the the, the relative expert in, mm. in the room at that time. And we often do approach things and do things very automatically. Mm. And so one of the big um, driving points for metacognition and how you can approach it is just to make your own thinking explicit, whether that's your own thinking or, or another people who's mastered a topic and they're having to then explain their own thinking. Mm. It's about what are those automatic processes that we go through and bringing a novice, so a, a pupil, along on that journey so they can mirror those processes those thoughts that approach whatever it might be and and kind of learn from that in the future 
Yeah, great. So it's quite a, it's quite a collaborative process in many ways. Yeah, and a, a real big part of it is modelling as well. And modelling is common practice in, in mm. I would say, every classroom. But what makes modelling... Um, your average modeling from metacognitive modeling mm. is that kind of inner dialogue. Um, so a real effective technique to do is, and it can be quite scary, get an exam question um, and, and don't prep it in advance, just mm. pick one and, and do it blind in front of the students. And they can then see how you, if it's a, a brand new question, how you then decipher that. So the processes you use to approach that question and kind of, it's even better to be honest, if you get it wrong as well, because then they can see, yeah. well, oh, what are your checking processes? How do you double check that you've answered what the question's wanting, et cetera, et cetera. And they can see you struggle with it as well. Yeah. And it's, it's really effective. It's a really effective method for kind of developing those metacognitive skills and collaborating with the group of students you have in front of you to kind of pick it apart and and all of those things it's almost like you know being part of the same team isn't it for that moment you're you're on the same team and we are all you know learning and moving our way through this so you know it's like the coach joining in with his football team and and becoming part of the team that is learning and and modeling that process of what that looks like yeah definitely looking at the sort of wider reading around metacognition there's a lot out there have you got any uh, top tips for us around the, the wider reading that we might be able to do? Yeah, the EEF put together a metacognition and self-regulation guidance report, um, and it's got a, a number of recommendations to help um, embed metacognition in your own classroom, so from like a classroom teacher point of view. But it also talks about the importance of um, CPD and at, from a potentially a whole school perspective, how it's important to upskill your staff in that area, because we, we can all learn something new. We, I've been in the classroom six years. I, I work with people that have been in way, way longer than me. And we were all learning from each other and we're all kind of seeking to kind of tweak our practice and mm. embed a kind of a new thing. So it highlights the importance of the CPD and it also kind of gives really good concrete examples of how to embed it in the classroom as well. So I definitely say that the Metacognition Guidance Report from the EF is, is a really good place to start. Okay, so let's go check that one out. And what about educational research? Is there one piece in particular every teacher should read? Uh, well, I, I do have a couple and everyone always says Rosenshine and everyone just, when I was asked about this recently and I said, oh, Rosenshine's, uh, principles instruction are a must and and I, I stand by that they are they if you read them it's things like good questioning starting um using recall interleaving kind of really good effective classroom practice and what's good about reading Rhodes and Shine's principles is it will it really brings you down to that nitty-gritty of good effective teaching what should happen in the classroom and my other one, which actually complements that really well, is to go away and have a look at cognitive load theory. It's it's just it's revolutionary when you start kind of looking at it. And a little bit of it is common sense, but often you read it and you're like, oh yeah, no, I do that. <laughs> oh, I should maybe change that a little bit. Um, and but what it says is kind of you when you are doing tasks, you have your working memory and you have various it has its limitations basically and when you're doing a task for a, a first time so mm. if you were a student it's very easy to overload that mm. and so 
cognitive load theory talks about how you can maximize the the working memory and how you can minimize things that impact it negatively and build upon their prior knowledge and and things like that and it, it's kind of uh, branches across all domains as well so whatever your subject is it, it people can really take from it and, and adapt to practice and and really have an, a, an impact on students learning so definitely Rosenstein's principles and and like I say cognitive load theory is, is is a massive one as well that people should go and have a look at okay right well I'm off to do that as well then um, and I know that certainly with some of the work I do that oral rehearsal idea is really useful in terms of cognitive load because it allows you to just practice through talk some of the some of the thinking that that you have before it becomes writing and it's a bit more formalized the repetitive nature of it as well is really good mm. um repetition of things really helps uh, keep things within that working memory and then hopefully encode into long-term memory which is the goal isn't it really yeah. learning getting into our long-term memory so absolutely well I think uh, Lauren you've really helped us all to really think about making the implicit explicit so thank you thank you for joining us on the podcast and it's really fascinating to hear about the world that you inhabit thank you we hope you enjoyed listening to this word up podcast from Oxford education to find out more about the Oxford smart curriculum read the curriculum direction paper and have your say please visit www.oxfordsecondary.com forward slash smart.